Hey everyone, welcome to this episode of the Aurelius Podcast. I'm Zach Naylor, CEO and co-founder here at Aurelius. This time around, we have Patrick Campbell on the show with us. He is the CEO and founder of Price Intelligently and ProfitWell, where their products and services help companies find money in their data by helping them to optimize their pricing strategies. Now, that might sound like a pretty different guest uh, for the type of show that we have, and it is. A big reason I decided to ask Patrick on the show is for the fact that he and his team are in a related but fairly different focus from most of us in design, research, and product management. However, the single main theme across everything Patrick talks about is doing customer research. They put out a lot of great free content, and nearly all of it talks about the importance of user research to make better decisions. It was a really great interview with a unique but complimentary perspective for our show, and I hope you enjoy it. On that note, we did recently launch our user research and insights tool, Aurelius. Aurelius helps you add, tag, organize, and search all of your user research notes and feedback, so you can quickly figure out what you learned faster and turn that into key insights to share with your team to make better designs, products, and features. Come check it out for a 14-day free trial over at our website www.aureliuslab.com. That's aureliuslab.com. All right, with that, let's get on with the episode. Welcome to Aurelius Podcast, episode 18 with Patrick Campbell. He is CEO and founder at ProfitWell, the company that helps companies find money in their data. Patrick, welcome to the show. Yeah, awesome to be here to talk about some research, insights, all that kind of fun stuff. And that we will. And those of you who are listening know that we cover that topic quite extensively here. However, one of the reasons I asked you to be on the show is your unique perspective. Um, I talked a little bit about your company and background, but I'd love for you to share what you're doing and why you'd be talking about user research and insights and the work that you do particularly because this is mostly a design product UX audience that we have. Yeah, totally. So um, definitely not a designer. Don't play one on TV. Um, definitely one of those things where um, try not to even say that I do any design because, you know, it's kind of one of those things that it's uh, definitely more of a specialty that you actually need to study. But uh, in terms of, you know, why why I'm kind of relevant here, uh, we actually have a product. Um, so ProfitWell has multiple different products. We basically help subscription companies with, uh, one, getting their data. We have a free product that does, you know, free subscription financial metrics. And then uh, one of our paid products is something called Price Intelligently. And Price Intelligently helps subscription companies get their pricing right and for the past six years with that particular product, um, the way that we do that is through extensive customer research using some of the algorithms and techniques we have developed, some open source algorithms and techniques, uh, and really work to get towards what do people value and who are the best people from both a kind of attribute perspective and also from kind of a willingness to pay perspective that you should be targeting as a as a company look like. So it's really all about buyer personas and you know we work to quantify buyer personas. That's kind of what we do on the price intelligently side. Yeah, so that's an interesting statement you just made there, sort of on the tail end of what you were saying, that you know, we work to quantify buyer personas. There's uh, definitely a handful of things that bring on a UX or product slant in my own head. Obviously, personas are one of the tools that designers and product teams are aiming to use. But more specifically, when we're doing research, unequivocally, well, when we're doing research, we're looking to find out what people value. And how do we understand that better in order to deliver that value for them, our users or customers? Yep. Yeah, I think that most of the time, it's it, it it doesn't matter if you're a designer, or a UX researcher, or the CEO, whomever. You know, the 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 point of a company, and it it could be a nonprofit, it could be a for profit, any type of product, is to understand that customer on a level that justifies and converts the product 
for them, basically converts them to that customer with that product. And even on the retention side, like keeps them around if you're a subscription company or gets, keeps them coming back if you're kind of a one-time purchase type brand. And so I think it's it's something that's absolutely crucial to how you build a business. You need to understand that customer. And unfortunately, not a lot of people are doing the research. No one listening here, obviously everyone's listening here is, is into research, but in the aggregate, it's kind of sad. We have some data actually on you know how little customer development or customer research people are doing uh, from from you know not only a pricing perspective, just in their businesses, and yeah, it's pretty scary. You know, it's it's funny you say that though, Patrick, because I'd say that there are those those listening here that are probably struggling in their day to day job, um, saying you know I can't convince them to do user research or I can't convince them to do enough, you know, or maybe what we would consider you know enough that is adequate. But with all of that being said, I'm interested in taking a step back because you're doing user research and you're doing it and maybe applying it in a different way. I think it'd be fascinating for those listening to hear a little bit more about, you know, even at the beginning, how do you go about doing research and, you know, what does that mean for you yeah, d- tactically speaking? Definitely. So on kind of a tactical level, um, the research that, that we do in particular, it's it's more, as I kind of stated, quantifying that buyer. And so what we mean by that is we want to understand, um, you know, there, there's only so many features and there's only so much space that you can have on a page, right? So you want to basically optimize in that buyer experience and also just in the product that you're building around the things that are going to drive value, not only from a kind of feature perspective, but also, you know, from a value proposition perspective. And so our algorithms, what we do, and I can go definitely into a lot of detail here, um, what we essentially are working on is taking that buyer um, and going after and finding out what attributes they care about. So essentially, if you take the five next features on your roadmap or your top five value propositions or you know your, your 10 features inside you know you, the packaging that you think you want to have if you're a subscription product, and basically taking that data, um, asking the right questions, and the right questions are oftentimes the hardest thing to do. So we use something... Um, We've modified it. It's called a, it's, it's the root of it is max diff, and the root of that is kind of conjoint analysis. And we've modified it to be a lot more applicable for you know for software, and also a little bit more uh, dependable. And what it does is basically it forces people to make decisions. So what we do with that is once someone runs through you know something in terms of research, we can actually say, okay, this is cool. We have you know let's say we're selling a sales product. We have sales teams that have one to five people. They really, really care about these three features. Sales teams from six to 10 people, they really, really care about the same three features, but also this other one. And then these big sales teams, they care about everything. Uh, and then what we can do is we can cross-reference that with our other research technique, which um, is it's a modified Van Westendorp for anyone who wants to look that up, um, where we've kind of broken that that value model. And, and what it does is with some basic questions, you can essentially ask people about how much their willingness to pay looks. And what's beautiful about it is you not only start to figure out, okay, those three sales teams, here's the willingness to pay, but you also start to figure out, oh, people who really, really care about these features, their willingness to pay is X, whereas people who care about these other features, their willingness to pay is X plus Y. And that's where you can start to figure out, hey, this you know PM, you know this arrogant PM in the team, um, really, really cares about this one feature that he saw one support ticket around that turned out to be a company that he likes, and so he wants to spend all his time building this bad feature. And basically, with some data, you can you can say, ah, that's actually not a good feature for for our target customer. So that's kind of a, a good you know overview of kind of what we do. I mean, there's a lot of other details details in that. But um, it's one of those things where it's all about understanding those customers and, and oftentimes understanding who is not your customer as well in order to, to optimize your pricing in our case. But it also has some positive externalities for the rest of the company. Okay. So that was super cool. One of the things that I heard you say there was oftentimes you're doing this research to actually make a case for who maybe isn't our customer so that we can understand who we should not be trying to serve, right? That's interesting. Yeah. Talk about that a little bit more if you would. Yeah, I think, so So the problem is, and, and we can argue that this is a problem with how much funding flows into businesses, or 
I think it really is just a problem of laziness, to be honest with you, where we've, we've gotten, um, you know, five, 10 years ago when we were building product and it, it didn't really matter if it was physical or if it was software, there was so much stuff we had to like do in order to build a company. You know, you had to, you maybe didn't have the servers in your closet because there was still SaaS, but you were able to at least, you know, you had to do a lot of work just to like build product. And today we've, we've gotten the ability to build things very, very quickly. Problem is, is that all of a sudden um, companies are like, oh, we can just build stuff quickly. So, you know, we can build a bunch of stuff, even if some of that stuff isn't great, but all companies are able to do that. So there's this density. And I think what's happened is, is we basically think that, you know, oh, well, we're selling a DevOps product. So I guess our, you know, customers, any DevOps person in the world, right? Or we're selling <laughs> this product manager product. You know, it must be every product manager out there. It doesn't matter the company or even even worse, like, hey, we're selling this like company product. Any company can buy this. And the problem is, is that kind of worked earlier in the world, you know, because it was there wasn't a lot out there. Um, you know, you think of like project management software. There was there was some out there, but Basecamp was this really, really big company out there early on. You know, Crazy Egg for marketing analytics, um, you know, interestingly enough to bootstrap companies, which is kind of cool. But I think that um, for us, what we found is that a lot of companies, they're, they're starting to realize like, oh, we're wasting so much time and money acquiring people who just aren't profitable and just don't have good retention for us. We need to start you know, saying no to certain types of companies or certain types of personas and just focusing on the ones that are going to bring us value and that you know, it's, a, it's a whole host of factors. It comes down to their willingness to pay, their retention, and then even the ease of use basically acquiring those customers as well because you might want to go after a particular customer and it turns out they're just terrible in order to actually get a hold of. Yeah. Okay, okay, okay. So... This is good. I like the thought track that we're going down with this. And one of the things that I I want to, I'm trying to step back here and actually figure out the question that I want to ask you is that, it, you know, at the end of the day, like when we're getting this information, how is it that we determine the people who we should be trying to provide value to and those that we shouldn't, right? Because that, yeah. that really sounds like the focus of what you're saying here. I think it, it comes down to using your qualitative instincts because no matter what role you have in the company, you, you have, even if, as long as you've been there a couple of months, you start to have a feel for who you should be selling to. And if you're like a UX researcher, if you're a designer, you're looking at support tickets, you're looking at what works, what doesn't. You also have like your um, kind of instincts around what should just work in general, like independent of that company. And so I think you, you want to start there. So if, if, you know, we're talking to Salesforce and we're helping Salesforce do their research, it's not like we're going to sit there and think, oh, maybe like mom and pop shops in the middle of Wisconsin are a good target, right? We know it's going to be salespeople and we have some data to support. It's going to be sales managers or sales buyers between X and Y. Right. And that's when you have to start kind of doubling down with more quantitative research and insights, because what ends up happening then is, hey, we want to make sure that that X and Y, let's say it's 10 salespeople up to 100 salespeople for the Salesforce example. We want to make sure that those those bounds are actually the right bounds. And then once we have that, we want to kind of dispassionately understand what they actually value because we want to start to take those instincts and validate or invalidate them in terms of features and things like that in order to make sure that we are targeting the right customer. And occasionally you'll have situations where you know, you're doing UX research or even this type of research and you discover, oh, there's, there's, there's an inkling or my gut feeling based on some leads we got from a blog post or suggesting that we should be targeting this other type of buyer. And then you start the cycle kind of all over again where it's like, okay, let's go, you know, do some qualitative research. Let's get some instincts built and then let's validate or invalidate those instincts and hypotheses with some actual quantifiable data. Okay. Okay. This makes sense. Um, and I want to take it to a, a slightly different place that I'm curious and I got to believe that some folks listening to this would probably ask the question, oh, cool. Uh, and I, I expect everybody's tracking with you on this, but how do you go about doing this? Again, like very tactically speaking, is this, yeah. is this just, you're just having conversations and making some gut reactions or are, you know, are you collecting this information, turning it into something else, sharing it with other people? Yeah. So 
qualitatively, you know, you're, you're doing your traditional customer development, which people have written extensively about. Um, so I won't go too deep into there, but it really comes down to, you know, you have to have some sort of a research question, in my opinion. So, for example, like just understanding who your buyers are, that's that's a, that's a that's a high level research question. So what that means is, is I might not. You know, if I'm US based, but I have European customers, I might not collect European data on that. Or I might not interview the European folks because I'm trying to find the core. Whereas if I'm trying to figure out localization, like how should my pricing or how should my product look in different regions, then of course I need to add that data to across, you know, different pieces. So it starts with that research question. So let's assume we're doing a buyer persona research question, like who are, who should I be targeting and who shouldn't I be targeting for a buyer? The next step is, is that you essentially know within some bounds who those buyers are, right? Like, just like we talked about. So we know it's like sales managers and we know it's typically between 10 and a hundred different, you know, salespeople on these teams. What you do is that's going to be your kind of qualification or your segment of who you're going to target. We want to find this role in this type of company. And you probably have a ton of those in your customer database. You probably have a ton of those in your prospect database. And then there's tons of companies in the world, their entire goal is to basically sell you access for research to people in those bounds in order to answer your questions. And what I like to do is when I'm setting up that qualification, I like to do what I call one step to the left, one step to the right. So with a salesperson, I might go, okay, director of sales is the buyer. I'm going to, but it's 10 to hundred people. My bound is actually going to be five to maybe 150 people. So one persona size down and one size up just to really test if that's the bound that I'm going for, because maybe I can actually go more down market or maybe I should be going up market. So that's the qualification. And I'm going to make sure that I collect that data on every single person that responds to, to my survey research. The next step is to do what I call segmentation questions. So those questions are things like um, anything that you think is going to influence value. So for a B2B company, it's going to be things like, you know, amount of revenue they're bringing in, their team size, uh, maybe what tools they're using, what their seniority level is, those types of things. For a B2C company, someone selling to consumers, it might be household income, gender, location, um, you know, even preferences for things. So I'm going to have these two sets of questions. And then the third and the fourth set of questions, one is that max diff or that um, kind of forced trade-off type question. And this is where for a buyer, I'm going to figure out Here's my five value props. I want them to tell me which one is best. Here are my five main features. And then here maybe, you know, my five like use cases that I want to like see which one they prefer. And those are all going to be things where they're going to force a decision. So instead of asking the traditional research question, which is very problematic in my opinion of, hey, here's this thing, rank it on a scale of zero to 10, mainly because that type of a question, it doesn't force the user to make a decision. I'm going to ask them, hey, out of these five things, what's the most important and what's the least important? And I know we're on audio, so it's hard to see, but that type of data gives you not only rank order, but gives you magnitude. So you can figure out maybe no one cares about any of these things, or maybe there's one that they really don't care about, but there's, there's four or three that you know, they do kind of care about. So I'm going to do that for those three sets. And then the final kind of piece is I'm going to do these price sensitivity questions which kind of takes advantage of how we think about value. So human beings, we think about value on a spectrum. So I know that, you know, the laptop that's in front of me right now that we're recording on is less or excuse me, more expensive than the glass of water I have next to me. Right. And I know that because I've bought a bottle of water before and I've bought a laptop before and I can kind of understand instinctually the difference. And so we take advantage of that by asking questions like, at what point is this way too expensive? that you would never consider purchasing it? At what point is it a really good deal? And things like, at what point is it too cheap that you'd question the quality of it? And what you've done with these four sets of different types of questions is you've now put together a panel of essentially a data treasure trove that once you get the data, you wanna basically segment the hell out of it. So you basically wanna see, okay, it's interesting. 
you know, people who are in, you know, Texas with tech companies seem to really like this one feature. I'm not sure why, but that data is interesting, right? Or people of this size, you know, are willing to pay less than people of this size, which is something that you'll traditionally see in B2B. But the idea is that research question set the bounds. And then essentially what we're doing is we're collecting these different types of data so that we can start to make some decisions and, and basically validate these different ideas. So I know that was a lot. Um, and so there's a, we wrote a book on this actually, so we can go into more, you know, plenty of more detail or I can, you know, pass it along for the show notes so that, um, you know, it's a little bit, a uh, little bit more digestible maybe besides, uh, besides the audio track here. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's okay. Uh, I think we're used to long answers on this stuff and, uh, it's certainly kind of a, a theme of our podcast. So there's no worries there. There's a couple of things I pulled out of that, Patrick, sure. um, that I think are directly applicable and not only like familiar to probably a lot of the people listening to this episode. So the first one is sounds like a lot, if not all of this data that you're, that you're getting in this regard is kind of coming from the, the method we would call as surveys. Yep. Is that, is that true? Okay. So that's yeah. one thing is just consider, hey, maybe this is a way we can apply how we build and use surveys to collect this data, right? Totally. Um, and I, I think that uh, people hate surveys. Like people, <laughs> like researchers hate surveys. Here's a huge problem. Um, we hate surveys because we are terrible at sending surveys. Um, as, as like a, as a group, right? Oftentimes what ends up happening is we'll send a survey that's 45 questions long and we'll send it to someone's email address. And the first question will be, what's your email address, right? Which is like, oh my gosh, you just wasted the user's time, right? And so the, the, the kind of big diatribe that I just described, the tactics, the details, you're not going to send that whole thing to one person to respond to unless you're compensating them. Um, you're going to actually chunk that up if you're not compensating. And after sending about 30 million of these things, we found that really if it's a non-compensated person, you want to collect maybe 30 to 60 seconds worth of answers. Mm -hmm. um, if you're compensating, it can be 15 minutes long and you know totally fine. But that's one thing on a little side note on surveys, because I know there's some haters out there with surveys, but surveys are actually such an effective tool to gather insights and research. No, it's an interesting point. And before I get to the other thing I pulled out of what you were saying is, uh, uh, yes, surveys, I think, are misapplied. I think that's what we're, totally. that's what we're really finding here, right? Like is the problem. I, so I, I will lend my design product side of the world uh, and, and why haters of surveys. I, so I think surveys are bullshit in a lot of cases, primarily because I think people use them as a crutch. They say, oh, mm. we got to learn something from customers. Let's just send a survey. Yeah. And the problem is, is that might not be the best way to learn or get the answers, as you would say, to the questions we have, totally. right? And that's a big deal because while you might get an answer <laughs> to the question you ask from the survey, it could lead you down the wrong path if it was the wrong uh, vehicle and channel and way of asking that question, right? So I think from our side of the world, it's they're abused. Is uh, and I think that's totally. where we're actually seeing common ground, right? Like surveys are just abused. Everybody wants you to fill yeah. out a survey, and most of it's bullshit. Like people don't even really do anything with it uh, at the yeah, end of the day. I think it's yeah. I think it's is you're totally right. It's abused as like oh we don't know what to do. Let's send a survey. I think that what's interesting though is the best kind of researchers we find in the world are. You know, they're, they're, they're using multiple tools, right? On, on one level, there's, you know, doing surveys, but also doing the interviews, also looking at the data. And at the end of the day, no one data source is, is king, right? You have to combine the perspectives in order to make a decision. But yeah, I mean, if you respect surveys, it's, it's actually a huge, hugely valuable tool. But most of the time, you know a company that's using them properly because they do them regularly and in bite size and down to the right segment. They're not just blasting their list with, you know, as I said, a 45 question, uh, you know, <laughs> diet or crazy, crazy conversation of, you know, what's good and what's bad. Yes. Okay. So I want to dig into something you said there too. But before I do, another point that I pulled out of uh, your explanation of how you gather this data, I think it's very, very applicable to the work we do let's say in design research product, yep. is uh, understanding somebody's sensitivity to value. Yeah. So you were discussing this and it's like, you are working actively in the research you're doing to force somebody to make a decision on what is most valuable to them. Yep. I think that that's actually a bombshell 
point to make across both of our perspectives. Yeah. Right. And, uh, I want to tie that back to something else you said, because I have to believe that is probably pivotal in helping convince that PM who's stubborn on doing a thing, right. Of what's valuable and what's not. And I'm just kind of curious if you've ever had that experience and if you could share any stories, uh, along that regard. So make sure I'm understanding you. So an experience where, um, you know, taking the data to, to basically convince a PM that they're wrong or, or, or more so on, you know, helping out with like design and things like that. Yeah. So I don't, <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's interesting that you put it that way because I don't personally like to take the, uh, combative stance. I don't think that we should be aiming to prove anybody wrong. I think we should be aiming to find what's right. Uh, so maybe that's a philosophical and like uh, maybe the Boston's coming out. I've converted from my old Wisconsin <laughs> roots to combative yeah. Boston. Well, yeah. we talked about this before we got on the line. Where I'm actually from Pittsburgh, so I don't. We've maybe reversed. maybe my yeah maybe my East Coast is gone. No, I, yeah. I think so. Because here's the thing, uh, I've given like as we also mentioned before we got into this uh, talk I gave recently was about like selling your ideas and how design sure. is a business. You will not sell anybody anything that they're not already willing to buy. Right. And so like user research, <laughs> you're shaking your head. I think so. You're a better salesman I than no, I am. I, I'm I, thinking I, I about it. I'm thinking about it. I don't know. I think that I mean, I, it's not that I, I mean, the majority of things totally. But it's one of those things where I'm thinking like, what about pet insurance? Mm -hmm. Like pet insurance is, you know, this is something I'm kind of fascinated with because <laughs> I don't know if you had a dog or you know an animal I do. growing up. But it was one of those, and I have a you know one and a half year old dog now, and it was when I was growing up, pet insurance, I think it existed, but it wasn't a thing, right? Mm -hmm. And I think there's a lot of products like that where now someone's like, well, you gotta get the pet insurance. You know, you have to protect the dog. And you're like, I, yeah, I guess, sure. Yeah, that, that sounds like what I have to do. And so, but I think that, I think the core sentiment of what you're saying is 100% right. I think it's just one of those things where, you know, depending on like the quote unquote sales cycle, there might be a situation where, you know, the, the, someone can very quickly think and feel they need to buy or want to buy something. Yeah, no, that, so this is actually a great example and it's a great point specifically, uh, to, uh, I guess the punchline to the joke that I am getting at, right. Sure. Is to where, yes, you became a sucker for the pet insurance because you're, oh uh, yeah, sure. Of course I want to protect my pet. Ah, yeah. because that's the thing. It's not that you wanted pet insurance. It's because the thing that's important to you is protecting uh, the well-being of your dog, your one-and-a-half-year-old dog, right? Yeah, totally. And so what they sold you on was not pet insurance. What they sold you on was confidence. Like what they sold you on sure. was assurance. Maybe you didn't know, need, know you needed it in the form of pet insurance. <laughs> but anyway, uh, hoping to keep us on track, I guess the totally. point I was making is like, the research data that we have, the point I've often made is that, and, and you said it even the beginning of this podcast, right? Yeah. Is that it's to support decisions or defend a certain argument that we have for recommendations we make, right? Yeah. In your case, maybe it's pricing, but in our case, it's like designs, feature recommendations, changes. Um, I'm curious how you may or may not have done that in the past and say with that stubborn PM, like, do you have a story to say, Hey, this person thought, you know, maybe they didn't need pet insurance as an example right now. All of a sudden we showed them this information that convinced them that they should. Yeah. I think, I mean, it's, it's, um, I think data is the, I mean, it's the key to building empathy in, you know, cause, cause I believe that everyone inherently on some level wants to do a good job. Um, you know, and that might be a fool's kind of perspective, but I think that if you're, if you're, you know, in, in the right mind, you know, and not, you know, incredibly insecure or incredibly X, Y, Z, you know, you want to do a good job. And so it's, it's not that that PM, you know, that PM is, is, is only using the data that he or she has when, you know, they, they might very arrogantly believe that this is the one feature and are very combative about it. Um, I don't know what PMs you've worked with in your day. I've worked with some very, uh, let's just say very opinionated PMs in the world. But I think that what, what the data does, and, and I can, you know, go through a couple of stories um, where essentially it's when you bring data to someone that says, hey, you know, this thing that you thought 
is actually not the case, obviously you don't go to them and go, hey, this is wrong. Like, you're wrong. How dare you? This is, you're wrong. Because basically the, the, the arrogance that they might have had about that feature, it comes from some insecurity or something like that. And what ends up happening is that's just going to help them dig in deeper, right? Yeah, it'll amplify yeah. it, right? And so it's one of those things where um, what I have found when you're in these situations, because we often, I mean, we're sometimes in situations where we're like, hey, guys, you think this product's amazing? No one wants to buy it. No one. Like it's, it's, or, or the willingness to pay is so low that it's, it's just not going to work for the market that you're trying to go after from, you know, just a unit economic perspective. And in those conversations, it's often like, okay, here's what's going on. You have to bring a lot of evidence. That the data is accurate. That's, that's the big thing. Cause the, the first thing people want to do is attack the data. Um, because it's like, Oh, well, I'm not wrong. The data is wrong. Right. And you know, so you have to make sure it's like, Hey, there's a lot here. And then also I think that, you know, you want to show someone a path that, you know, gets them excited. So that PM it's like, Hey, this thing's not great but the research indicates that this is actually better. Do you agree? And then you have the conversation or sometimes the argument about the, the relevance of the data and then have them also see the other data that's supporting that argument. So a couple of other qualitative pieces of, hey, this conversation, yep, yep, that feature may be important, but this one's so much more important based on this data. Um, and then most people kind of stand to reason and, and start to kind of essentially come around on, on that kind of stuff. And so, yeah, I mean, there's there's plenty I can definitely get into specifics, but I think it's it's really about building that empathy and taking that empathy from you and you're convinced to basically transferring that empathy and using whatever tools you have from the different data sources, both qualitative and quantitative that you have to, to basically get that PM or whomever excited about, you know, the different option, if you will. Yeah, totally. Well, okay, a couple comments I want to make on that. The first one I think that's glaringly obvious, at least to me, is that when you said like, yeah, people want to attack the data, of course. And I, the thing that's interesting about that for me, um, and I don't know if it's just my own personal experience and background, but people I find are often not as uh, trigger happy to attack qualitative data because it's it's, so it's, it's it's it is yeah. weird, right? Because it's like it's very squishy. It's ill-defined. Uh, it's two if, people if, who said two things, yeah, exactly. If you've not defined it, however, the quantitative data is like, oh well, obviously it was an instrument problem or it was a it was a measurement problem, right? It's <laughs> like how you ask the question, yeah, it's like bingo. Oh it's it's an, it's an interesting thing that at least I've found was the word quantitative data. People immediately want to start firing bullets at that, but the qualitative stuff, they're like, oh. This is fascinating. Like, That's tell so me good. more. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Exactly. It could be a sample size of two, um, but you know, whereas the quant could have been a sample size of five hundred thousand. Well, I think, I think quants, and I'll consider myself a quant. We we do a disservice to that argument because oftentimes what happens is we come into a situation and we're. We're like, this is a hundred percent right. You know, we're not <laughs> saying that because that's intellectually dishonest, but we are we come in and we're like, You're wrong, I have all these answers. And I think that what I've found at Bridges the Gap on, you know, this qualitative quantitative is is coming in and saying, listen, like we will never know until we actually launch this or we actually put it out there. And if we're not convinced we're, you know, we can do landing pages or we can do different more tests. But what I like to kind of do is listen and say, listen, we're not trying to find the perfect answer. We're trying to hedge our risk and we're trying to hedge our risk in a way that lops off as many bad answers as possible. So when you look at like willingness to pay data, it's like, okay, I don't know if it's 999 or 1350, but I do know, I mean, in our algorithms in the right lens can actually get that accurate. But if you're just asking some qualitative questions or doing some light quantitative, you might know, hey, we know we're between 10 and $15. You know, we know we're there. And if someone starts to have like problems with that data, you start deferring to, listen, again, we know we're in this range based on the integrity of the way that we did this. Um, certainly we can, you know, try to drive more value there, but it's going to take some work. And here are the three features that we found are, you know, big drivers of value. We know that if we add those in as well, that's when we're going to get those higher willingness to pay numbers. But again, I think it's that approach of less this is 100% right and more, hey, let's lop off as much of this risk and hedge as much as possible so that we know when we put out that landing page, we're going to have a reasonable level of certainty that it's it's going to succeed. And I think the other problem, and this is like a little like tiny jab, is uh, 
we, a lot of us don't know basic statistics anymore. You know, we took a class in high school and we just kind of forgot because everyone's like, well, this sample size, is it statistically significant? <laughs> How many people responded? And you're like, you want to be like statistical significance isn't a number. It's, it's a measure of variance, right? So it doesn't matter. It could be 300 and still could be in, no, no, statistically non-significant. So right. yeah, it's one of those things where that's, you know, that's a little, you know, we should all, you know, sometimes you have to educate your, your audience will say. You know, and I'll actually, I, I, I really enjoy that you brought that up, Patrick, because I will share a secret I've used for the whole statistical significance thing. Uh, yeah. When and if it has come up, I say, you know, statistically speaking, 100% of people who eat bread will die. <laughs> and I just say, so consider that and, and what that means for you in making decisions of your life, right? Like yeah. statistical significance is good and the rigor around that uh, has its applications. But for the most part, like we're building software, right? <laughs> we're not yeah. uh, most of us, and I would imagine most of the people listening to this podcast, they're not they're not doing mission critical, uh, life altering, life devastating decisions, right? Like we're building software. Yeah. We can get close enough. We can put that out. We can learn from it by other means of research, by the way, uh, and we can get better. Yeah. Totally. So, okay. So, um, awesome. I, that's it. That's all we have to talk about. I guess we covered all of it. Yeah, no, of course, I'm, yeah. <laughs> of, of course I'm kidding though. Okay. So you're doing a lot of surveys and you're collecting this data, right? Yeah. Um, and in many cases, you know, particularly you and your team at ProfitWell, Price Intelligent, you're trying to help people understand the best decisions to make regarding pricing and maybe even value of their product. Is that, is that fair to say? Yeah, exactly. So we, I mean, pricing is a, it's a multidimensional piece. It's not just the number, you know, it's packaging, it's positioning, it's localization, it's making sure your product roadmap is set up correctly for value, all these types of things. But at the core of it, we, we measure value and that just allows us to essentially, um, you know, to help on you know, a statistical level by collecting this type of data. That's awesome. So by the way, I actually love the way you said that at the core of it, we measure value. Uh, that's super cool. Okay. So I want to ask again, tactically speaking, like what form does that take? Right? So you do this, you do this research, you're collecting this information by surveys or otherwise. Um, at the end of the day, you got to talk to somebody, you got to help them understand what it is you did, what it meant and what they should do about it. How do you go about that? So once we have all the data and all that kind of fun stuff. Yeah. Yeah, so um, frankly, and it's hard on a podcast to show this, but it really comes down to really good visualization. So we, and this is, I mean, something for researchers when you're presenting your findings. A lot of us, if, if we're addicted to the research, we get really excited about, hey, here's 80 pages of graphs or 80 pages of content or, you know, here's every single interview we did. And we used to do that back in the day. We were like, our, our utility is in how, how much data we can get in so little time cheaply. That was like our thing. And it's not like we put it on the website, but it was definitely kind of our, our oh, that's where our value is. And we started realizing we, we forgot the one premise of why you know we, we switched our model to being a little bit more tech-enabled service, which was people don't naturally understand you know, even even if you're doing qualitative research, they don't necessarily naturally understand, you know, how to interpret data. And so what we do is we get really good about essentially an executive summary. And what that does is it tries to create visualizations that essentially optimize as as much value in one graph as possible. And what that means is, is, you know, we have some visualization, these two by twos that, you know, I'm rolling my eyes because it's classic MBA two by two, even though I don't have an MBA. But, um, I, lo I love even more that you have, that you use it and have a disdain for it lacking the MBA. That's my favorite well, part of it's, this. It's just the best way to present it. And as soon as we developed it, I was just like, oh shit. Like it was kind of like one of those things where, okay, well, you know, a lot of our customers do have MBAs, so they'll appreciate it. But yeah, you're part of, a, you're part of the club now though. <laughs> yeah, I suppose. Yeah. But it's, um, you know, it's just basically a value matrix. And then what we try to do is depending on, you know, we do things in research sprints. So 
it's it's not as if we can create an entire pricing page in one research sprint because there's just too many things going on. But um, eventually what we do is we just try to show, hey, here's what your pricing page should be. Or, hey, this is the answer to that question. Because remember what we talked about in the beginning, which was yeah. we're trying to answer a question. And too many of us, I think, as researchers, we get so far away from the research question that the people you're presenting to or the people you're trying to convince or the people that you're trying to rally, they just they don't they can't they can't rally with you because you have all this cursive knowledge in your head from you know all the things you collected and you know answering the research question is is a really good straightforward way to keep everyone on the same page so that is a super important point in my opinion because you know we've talked about this um, talks that I've given other guests that we've had on our podcast all of it has been really centrally focused around this idea of creating shared goals. Yeah. And typically we talk about these goals in the form of uh, the goal of the product or the user experience, right? Which is to say, what is it that we're trying to do? And then we often talk about it and say, what are the success indicators that will show us we've done that thing well? So maybe we say yeah. something like, we want to see more people sign up for our free trial. Yeah. Okay, that's kind of a squishy goal. That's a decent goal statement, but we don't know. There's a whole lot of things we can do to impact that thing. So the success right. indicators then tell us uh, what's the behavior that we'll see, hear, feel that indicate to us we're meeting that goal well. Because once we've got that, then we can actually get solid metrics, which right. those quant-driven people... Um, that's the I, I irony of a lot of this research as well, though. So we do, we do this as well. So it's, you know, decision A would net this, decision B would net this. But the irony is so many researchers don't do exactly what you're saying, which is ironically tie it back to the data. So Absolutely. That's, a, that's an amazing point. That's a really good reminder. Absolutely. Well, and that's the reason why I beat this drum so hard so often is because it's not sexy work. It's not yeah. sexy or exciting or e even in some cases fun work to sit here up front and try to learn from your stakeholders or learn from your business what it is they're trying to do so that you can tie things back to it. Because you just want to – Wick, the same thing that's true uh, for our business and its stakeholders, that they're focused on the things they want to do, is that we often get too focused on the things we want. We get too focused on the research and the instrument and the application yeah. where we lose sight that it has to answer some question that's important to drive – something that's important for the business. Mm. Yeah. No, 100%. 100%. Love it. Right. Nice. Okay. So taking a little bit step back, I mean, Patrick, I know that your company uh, and your philosophy, frankly speaking, towards building your products and services, again, profit well, price intelligently, and, and, and the suite of services that you know you and your team provides, you have a similar philosophy on this. So I would really like to hear you know, how did you, how did you eat your own dog food or not? Like, right. Like when did you apply these same principles to the very thing that you're building? Uh, and, and when did those maybe may, may, may or may not make sense? Yeah, that's, that's, that's a really good question. And, um, we've, because we preach this so much, we always feel bad with our <laughs> level of this and, and we do so much more than, you know, other companies out there, but, it's one of those things where when you're, you know, when you're preaching it and, you know, you realize how hard it is sometimes to find the time to do some of these things, but also how impactful they are. It's, you know, it gives you a good perspective. Um, the, the, the best example is really when we launched our product called ProfitWell. So uh, for the first, you know, three years of the business, we just did Price Intelligently, which was essentially uh, we're a mix of a software product that's our algorithms that, you know, we, we kind of push all this data through and then also some service where we essentially translate that data into, hey, this is what you should do. Um, we used to be a pure software product for that product, but we found that when people got the data, they weren't really sure what to do with it. And so they needed our help and were willing to pay for it, thankfully. Uh, but three years in, we were helping a company with their pricing. And it was a company who had taken two other companies public, or a CFO who had taken two other companies public. And it turned out he was calculating his monthly recurring revenue incorrectly. And so that, for the folks out there who might not know what that is, it's, it's basically the, the you know, amount of money each <clears throat> month that that company's bringing in. It's the most basic metric for a subscription company out there. And so we got excited to launch 
this thing called ProfitWell, which was free subscription financial metrics. So you plug in your billing system and you get all your MRR, your churn, all that type of stuff, all your main important metrics for um, that type of a subscription business. But what had happened is when we got out of the MVP mode and we were launching, uh, there was a, a couple of big competitors that had launched two weeks before us and four weeks after us. And then a bunch of other competitors that we didn't know existed. And so what we ended up doing is, again, so that was all qualitative research. We basically, you know, we, we had that conversation. We went off and we talked to 20 people. We started building. We got 10 people hooked on the product. We asked them a bunch of questions. And then all of a sudden, with this kind of competitive landscape, we were, we were just, oh, no, uh, this is terrible. And so we went back to do what we do best, which is do this value research. And we weren't originally giving it away for free. Um, we weren't charging it, but we were thinking maybe we could charge. And what ended up happening is we went out and, and basically did our research. We collected willingness to pay data. We collected relative preference data. And what we discovered was that the willingness to pay for an analytics product is terrible. Um, <laughs> it's, uh, it's just awful. Um, it's, and it's because we as humans and practitioners, we don't really appreciate business intelligence that much. Um, and it's not because we don't appreciate the content. It's just we don't log in all the time. It's not in our workflow. We're not using it every day. And that essentially results in us just being unappreciative. And so we found out that the willingness to pay was really low. And we found out some other things that, you know, I talk about, you know, in some other posts out there. But essentially we decided, we're like, okay, now we need to make a decision. And the question was, just to kind of continue the theme, was basically, you know, should we continue building this? Meaning, it, or the more defined question was, is there value in building this product? We discovered that there is not value in selling it. But through some other research we did, which is more like traditional just market research around the size of the market, we decided that it made sense to do a freemium offering. Um, and that kind of came out in some of the research as well. So yeah, that's kind of a, a point where we, you know, we saw the problem and, and kind of went in and yeah, we do eat our own dog food, but that's the biggest, that's the biggest kind of example of, you know, if we, we figured out later on in hindsight that one of our competitors, they publicly put all their metrics out there. And uh, it turns out that our calculations were actually completely right. Uh, and, and he was struggling and wow. continues to struggle a bit. But we ended up, um, you know, basically saving what we think was 18 months because they tried a free plan later. One of our other competitors, they now have a free plan. And so it was one of those things where we were like, okay, we knew, we knew this was the future. So we hedged it and, um, you know, it worked out really well and it's continuing to work out. We probably don't have the, the most definitive answer of if it worked out, meaning if we're completely successful, but so far it's, it's, you know, it's definitely breeded us the best result. Wow. I mean, that's really something. And I guess, honestly, the biggest question I have for my sheer curiosity as a researcher are like, what are those big insights or takeaways that caused what I heard as maybe two or three really pivotal decisions that you made uh, as a company, as a product. Yeah. So what are the specific insights? Yeah. And I mean, how did you, yeah. I mean, how did you arrive at that, right? Like, cause I can't imagine it was just a, it was just a snap on the fingers where all of a sudden we got it. I mean, that's, what's kind of cool. It was, it kind of was um, really, you know, yeah. In a, not in a, like, not in a, we just woke up one day and just discovered it. <laughs> yeah, but of in course. A, more, more in a way of, we ended up, um, it, it was, it took us 12 hours total. It wasn't all in one sitting, mm. but we designed, we designed the survey, you know, and, and keep in mind, we, we've done, we do this for a living. And so we, we knew how to, you know, put these together, but it was, I think a, in total, probably a 25 question survey, but we only sent out, uh, we, we only sent the 25 question version to people we were compensating. And then the rest of the folks, we um, sent like three to four questions each, the people we weren't compensating. We got the data back, we started doing the calculations and we found out, just to give you an example, um, basically the willingness to pay for our smallest customer was around 50 bucks a month, which is not terrible, but it's, it's low. And then we discovered that our high-end customer um, was willing to pay about 250 and we weren't going to enterprise. So it was kind of like a, a growing company, but not someone who was huge. And uh, we, we had just had some cursive knowledge and, and maybe we did have more insight than we actually realized. 
that when you have only a 5x increase from the value from a low-end customer to a high-end customer, it's really bad for what's called expansion revenue in kind of the subscription world. And so yeah. basically, if, if someone with 50 bucks a month canceled, we we needed someone to offset that by upgrading from 50 to somewhere else. And when there's only a 5x lift, there's not a lot of opportunity for upgrades. So huh. yeah, that I mean, that was pretty pivotal because... You know, it was it was basically again defining that scope and defining the answer that we needed. Um, I think the other thing that we found out was that and this was later on because we were doing our research continuously. You know, we we were worried later on that you know free worked really well because you know one of the insights that we had found was there's only about forty to fifty thousand subscription companies in the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, so a lot of people think it's you know because we're in it again. It's like oh there's so many and it's like that's nah, not a lot, right? And so. Mm-hmm. That also helped us with free because we're like, we're not going to make a big company selling a $50 a month product to only 40,000 people. And so um, what ended up happening is we went out and um, we were collecting some data or what we were worried about was free was eroding our brand, meaning the only reason that people were using the product was because it was free. So we did another like three question survey and we asked um, some forced trade-off questions on, you know, what's the most valuable aspect of ProfitWell? And one of the options was that it was free, one of the options that it was accurate. And um, the number one thing, even when we collected it original data and also in this data set was accuracy. The, the accuracy mm. was the thing and that basically defines our top priority when it comes to, um, you know, we basically drop everything if something's inaccurate um, and fix it because we know that if we're inaccurate, people don't care and people leave us essentially. So this is actually super important for me to call out for the design and product side of the world because we often call these kind of things like design principles or experience principles. In your case, a design principle, an experience principle would be accuracy above all else. If our product and our experience does not provide accuracy in the data we're giving you as a company, price intelligently, profit well, then we fail. Everything else comes second to that. Yeah, absolutely. I think for us, I mean, there's there's probably like employee safety and things like that. Yeah, well, um, sure, sure. You know, but from a product perspective, yeah, it's number one, number one. And then, you know, as we get into you know, we, our other kind of product principles, you know, number two is, you know, we do it for you. Um, so that's a big thing where we found, and this is something else we found through research, more qualitative than quantitative, was that, you know, most BI tools, it's it's kind of like an empty vessel where you go in and they're like, hey, customize this. You know, there's a bunch of WYSIWYG editors and all this other stuff. And our big thing is turnkey. So that's, that's another big design principle, or uh, excuse me, product principle. And you know, a couple of others are, are particularly around, um, you know, making sure insights are very laden because, you know, it's it, we at least have a, a known type of business subscriptions. And so what that means is, is we're able to, you know, really create the right graph. You know, this is the way you should look at this and making it most intuitive and, you know, stuff like that. Yeah. Okay. Well, I mean, there's, there's an obvious number of parallels in how you're doing research to inform certain decisions that I think we can take lessons away from. Again, one of the things I think um, that everybody has shared common ground on are creating these goals. You yep. call them research questions, and, and research questions come from the shared goals in, in my side of the world, at least the way I've talked about it and, I, and I've discussed with other guests on our podcast, right? So that's one thing, you yep. know, the second one is then bringing that to a place where it helps you facilitate a conversation, maybe not win an argument because you'll never win an argument with data as our literally just recently passed uh, guest, Erica Hall has mentioned, you don't mm. win arguments with data. You don't, you don't win arguments with, uh, with those answers, you know, sure. you help, you help understand what's important to somebody else and you just try to inform what it is, uh, about that you what you learned that helps them do the thing that is important to them. Yeah, totally. Yeah, I think it's 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 one of those things where that alignment is so so important in that respect. Yeah, you know, and one of the things that uh, if this is number three, I guess I suppose uh, I thought of as you were talking about earlier, where and this is actually a, a direct quote <laughs> from the one talk that I gave most recently is when you're selling user research, you are not selling user research. You're selling confidence. You're oh, con- 100%. You're con- That's awesome. 
I'm yeah. gonna steal that. I'll yeah. attribute it to you, but that's awesome. <laughs> steal it, and uh, attribution is always always appreciated. But yeah. yeah, I mean, the point I was making with that, and so it was a talk about like selling your ideas. Uh, one of the things that we struggle with, which I'm actually curious if you've ever run up against, but selling the idea of doing research to inform a decision. I think some people, and you mentioned the arrogance, uh, even one of our yeah. way, way past guests, uh, Jeff Gotthelf, uh, mentioned this. It's like it's arrogance as to why we're not talking to customers enough. Yeah. But what I tell people is that you're not selling research. You're not selling your methodology. You're selling confidence yeah. in decision-making. Sounds like, you know, what's funny is I 100% agree and I'm going to use it, but it sounds like a car commercial. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it, sounds, it sounds a little bit like a BMW commercial or like a Audi, 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 I Midwest accent knocks me down there. But yeah, it does. It's like, um, you know, this isn't a driving machine. It is a party machine or like, you know, it's a, I, I'm totally on board with it. I'm going to steal it and I'm going to use it. I'm going to literally walk out the door and tell the pricing team like, Hey guys, this is how we should think about this. Um, yeah, it's yeah. probably going to be great. But I, that's, I just was thinking about that because it's. I mean, and that's 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 totally right. I mean, it's right for the Mercedes Benz commercial, and it's also right for for research. It is. Well, and that's why I say. I mean, you know. So Patrick and I were talking a little bit before we got into the actual proper recording, where I was telling him my recent thoughts around design as a business. The sooner we start treating it like that, yeah. uh, the more successful we'll be. And it's like if design is a business then what's our, what's our marketing and sales channel? Because marketing and sales are different. So how yeah. are we getting people interested in wanting to buy the service, the application of design? Well, it's by helping them understand how it meets the things that are important to them. That's the only way we meet success. Otherwise, you're rolling a boulder uphill to help them try to understand why design should be as important to them as it is to you. And that's way harder. Yeah. No, or, I think, I mean, oh, say that one more time? No, I was just going to say, or in this case, maybe research, why research should be as important to them as it is to us. Yeah, I think, I mean, that's, um, I can't remember. There's this guy named Kyle Porter. He's the CEO of SalesLoft. Um, and he's, he, I think he's the best salesperson I've ever met in my life. <laughs> um, not because he's, I mean, and he's not the, you know, he's got a little bit of that, oh, you're a sales guy, you know, you can recognize it, but he's not, he's not like, you know, slimy or anything, like not like a used car salesman, but he's right. tell, the phrase and God, it's going to, it's going to kill me because I can't say it in the audio correctly, but it's something like, you know, sales is, is simply transferring your values to your customer, right? Mm -hmm. Like there's something like that. I'm getting it wrong. It's, it's much more quippy, but it's, it's basically this concept of, you know, basically not not resting on your laurels or not like you know changing your values to meet the customer it's simply transferring your values to them that kind of concept yeah totally and and but you know you mentioned bmw i uh, i'll give a shout out to my my old friend john who drives a beamer yeah. and uh you know the reason he was sold on it was there was there uh God, what the hell is it called? Their tagline. Yeah, the it's not driving machine. Yeah, right? it's not. It's not a car. It's the ultimate driving machine. Which, yeah, I don't know if I. I don't know if I subscribe to myself personally. Um, I also don't own a BMW, so maybe that's why. But it's it's like that matters, right? Like the way you speak to somebody uh, to help them understand what it is that you're doing and how it's important to the things that they want to achieve. Yeah. It's just. It's just. It, it goes all the way back to just basic human psychology. So I also think, you know, it's so funny when you talk about design and research, what we've found, and I think it's something that's pretty important to this is that it's also about making like we, when you're selling software, it's, it's really about making that point of content look like a hero. That's really what a lot of this comes down to is like, you know, and, and I imagine when you're selling design or, and especially when we're selling research, it's about, Hey, this person, you know, they look really good and we might not be getting the whole credit that we deserve, but that's okay because we're, we're their ace in the hole, as they say. So when they need something, they're going to come to us or they're going to be a good customer reference or those types of things. Yeah. And I think, oh God, now it's going to kill me to uh, attribute this quote properly. I th want to say it was Truman who said mm. this, uh, but whoever it was, it was a quote that goes along the lines of, it's amazing the, it's amazing the things you can accomplish when you're not worried about who receives the credit. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, ego, baby, arrogance. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, 
I mean, you know, you you know, founder and you know, building something. It's it's exactly what it is. You know, it's, um, you know, it's 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 we have to take our you know our reactions to things and our reaction to data even in the right context because we're going to be wrong so many more times than we're actually right. Um, yeah. Unless yeah. we're really lucky and we have a horseshoe up, you know, or horse, I won't say <laughs> aggressive unless we have a horseshoe, you know, around our neck here, you know, it's something that, you know, it's pretty important. Or another place physically on our body, which yeah, I think yeah. is where you were getting at. Well, no, um, I have a, that's a, fr- again, you know, I come from a family of roofers and electricians. And so I uh, just say it was an interesting childhood. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah good well that's 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 a whole another hour for a whole another that's a podcast. Whole another hour for the uh you know the research therapy podcast probably but which i think actually we probably should start uh here at aurelius but in the yeah, interest yeah. of that i want to be respectful of your time patrick and i see that we're we're kind of coming to the end of of the conversation we should have one of the things that i started asking of all of our guests um it's also something i ask of people i interview to be honest is let's say I had temporary amnesia and I forgot everything we talked about. What's what's the salient point, the thing that you would want to drive home, that you would want me and the listeners of this podcast uh, to remember from our conversation? Mm, okay. I think, ooh, now there's so many things. Um, <laughs> I think uh, a couple of pieces. Uh, one, uh, data data is a tool shouldn't be used as a crutch. And so what that means by that is you, you absolutely need to collect the data, but you need to use it in the context of the qualitative information you have, the other quantitative information you have, and ultimately choice, which is something I don't think a lot of people think about, where maybe you know you want to push something in the direction even though the data might be you know telling you the opposite. Um, so it's, it's, it's not something where you know being data-driven is not necessarily a good thing it's something where you need to uh you know you need to defer to data essentially um i think that the second big piece is uh when you're having these conversations data is is something that's used to quickly gain empathy and when you're talking to someone who you know is basically flying in the face of data and you trust the data and you trust you know the direction the data says you know, you need to basically elicit that empathy in, in that person through, you know, other means if they don't trust the data or, you know, get the data that's going to convince them. Uh, I think that, you know, frameworks are really important to this. Uh, frameworks are huge and, you know, it's more important to pick your framework and use it than to try to find the right framework, I would argue. Mm. And yeah, I would say the last piece, and this is kind of a, a big thing that I think about is that uh, personas without data, I think, are, um, are are not useless, but they're very weak. And I think that we rely a lot on them when we haven't actually collected or quantified them on some level. Uh, because uh, think about it this way. Most personas are made by a bunch of people in the room who have context, but they're just putting all their opinion and their ego on a page. And then you're saying, hey, company, follow this whole thing. And in reality, it's probably not the best idea. And so I would, I would defer to some data there. So I think those are the big things. Um, but now I'm going to think of six other things, but I'll, I'll leave it at that. It's a wonderful point on the personas. Thank you for taking the challenge and answering that question. First of all, Patrick, um, if I can add anything to it, if I may, it's a wonderful point on the personas thing. Uh, and I will hearken it back to a former guest on our podcast, Andy Budd, where he talks about this idea of research theater, where we, you know, we've done the research, so that means we should have the answers. We've done the research, mm. so that means we should be able to create these personas. And we like to – it's displaced confidence. Again, I go back to this thing where you're not selling research, you're selling confidence. Can you yeah. give somebody confidence in the decisions they have to make about, maybe in your case, pricing? Maybe in yep. my case, design, service delivery, features, product. If you cannot answer those questions, it's research theater. It's cargo culture, as Andy Budd would have put it. I like that. Yes. Awesome. Okay. Yeah. Okay. We are at the end of our time. Patrick, I want to just say very much uh, thank you. We really appreciate you taking the time to have a chat with us. I think this is fascinating, and I think there's a lot of uh, – 
parallel uh, lessons and applications we can take on how you're doing your research to how folks in the design and product community can be doing their research. Is there anything you would like to share with the community that we have not talked about so far? Yeah, absolutely. I think uh, I kind of already mentioned it, but if if you want to go deep on some of the research methods that I talked about, uh, we wrote a book. Just you know, go to our homepage um, and basically you know find the pricing book there, which should be pretty simple. Uh, and it's it just goes deep and it's free and it just goes really really deep into our research methodology for for pricing. Uh, a lot of folks listening might not you know, be that person. But if you're an advocate of research, uh, there's going to come a time where your company is like, Hey, we need to fix our pricing. And more often than not, it's not going to be the most data driven process. And so you can kind of support them with, uh, Hey, you should check this out in particular because it'll give you the framework for, for at least approaching your pricing in some way. And if you have any other questions, obviously you can reach out to me at PC at profitwell.com. Awesome. Awesome. So I, we're going to have a link to that. Uh, and that will be priceintelligently.com. They can go and they can they can download that that book that you guys wrote on this methodology. I personally believe it's an opportunity for us as design researchers researchers to be able to inform the process of changing our pricing, whereas maybe we wouldn't have otherwise had that opportunity. Yeah, totally. Well, so we're gonna have a link to that. You go head over there, check out Patrick and his team's book. Patrick Campbell, thank you so much for joining us on this podcast, and uh, it was a great conversation. Absolutely. Appreciate you having me. All right, everybody. We will see you next time. If you enjoyed this episode, consider leaving us a rating on iTunes or wherever it is that you listen to our podcast. And also, you can fill out our podcast survey where you can let us know if someone awesome that we should have on the show and even tell us about the things you would want to hear about, topics that are interesting for you. You can check that out in the show notes or on our website. Thanks for listening to Aurelius Podcast, talking about product strategy and design strategy. We are the first platform of its kind to help you solve the right problems for your customers and your business and build products and services that truly matter. You can check us out at AureliusLab.com. That is www.aureliuslab.com. A-U-R-E-L-I-U-S-L-A-B dot com. And check us out on Twitter at Aurelius Lab and Instagram Aurelius Lab. We'll see you next time.